The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast hosted by the litigation and policy team at Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research platform of Bloomberg LP. This podcast series examines the intersection of business, policy, and law. And today we'll be looking at the litigation and policy catalysts that we're watching in February 2024 and that we think will impact companies across a number of different sectors. My name is Elliot Stein. I'm a senior litigation analyst covering litigation in the financial sector, and I will be your host for today, February 1, 2024. As always, if you have any questions about any of the matters that we'll be discussing on this episode, please don't hesitate to reach out to us at your convenience with your questions. All right, so we'll be discussing a handful of sectors today. First, our healthcare policy analyst, Dwayne Wright will discuss why Centene and United Health are the likely beneficiaries of an Affordable Care Act sign-up surge, and separately why retail companies like Best Buy and healthcare providers like Emeticis will benefit from Medicare's hospital at home waiver. After that, Tish Walker, our healthcare patent litigation analyst, will preview an upcoming claim construction hearing on February 8th in litigation between Arbutus and Moderna over the latter's COVID vaccine. Sticking with patents, Tamlin Basin will tell us about Apple's choices now that a U.S. import ban on some of its watches uh, has taken effect. Sticking with tech, Matt Schettenhelm, our TMT litigation and policy analyst, will discuss February 26th oral arguments in the Supreme Court concerning whether the First Amendment allows states to force internet platforms like Google and Meta to carry content against their will. After that, I'll discuss uh, an upcoming hearing on February 5th in a lawsuit by private equity firms and hedge, fund, hedge funds challenging a recent SEC rule that would increase regulation of private fund advisors. Nathan Dean, our financials policy analyst in Washington, D.C., will then give us an update on the Basel III endgame concerning capital requirements for banks. And he'll also talk about an anticipated final rule by the CFPB on credit card late fees. After that, Justin Teresi, who covers consumer and industrial litigation and policy, will discuss additional trials that the company Bayer faces in cancer-related roundup litigation in state courts across the U.S. And last but not least, our antitrust analyst, Jen Ree, will discuss a lawsuit likely to be filed by the FTC against the Kroger-Albertson's M&A deal. As always, all of this research is available on the Bloomberg terminal under BI Go. And just a quick word about Bloomberg Intelligence for those who don't know. 
we are the investment research platform on the Bloomberg terminal, providing in-depth research on industries, companies, and markets, and delivering key data from BI analysts in their given industries. All right, so with all that out of the way, let's get started with the content. Dwayne, let's bring you in to start with some DC policy talk, uh, specifically in the healthcare sector. Uh, you've written that there has been a record number of Affordable Care Act signups for 2024, and that Centene and United Health are among the uh, health insurers most likely to benefit from that. And you also had a uh, really interesting note on hospital at home care and why companies like Best Buy and Amedesis are likely to benefit from a Medicare waiver for such care. You want to come in and tell us more about these issues? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Elliot. So there was some good news for health insurers in January. Uh, the obvious bad news being unfavorable Medicare Advantage cost trends. Leaving that aside, uh, there was good news for their commercial segments, uh, especially for United Health, Centene, and Elevance. Uh, Affordable Care Act signups uh, during the open enrollment period topped 21.3 million people. Why is that good news? It's 5 million more than signups uh, from 2023. It offsets some of the roughly 15 million people that are expected to lose Medicaid coverage during the renewal process that began in April. And it suggests that of the 15 million, uh, some are being captured into a different uh, business segment, allowing companies to retain premium revenues. Uh, CMS estimates that uh, of the 21.3 million, or the 5 million new uh, enrollees, 2.4 were previously on Medicaid. So why is this happening? Uh, one, the timing, uh, the Medicaid renewal process, and a multi-stakeholder push on coverage is free advertising for the Affordable Care Act as a health coverage option. And then number two, enhanced subsidies. Uh, the IRA's enhanced subsidies lowers premiums for individuals below a certain income or if their premiums are a certain percentage of their annual income. Uh, so both of these trends have been favorable for the health insurers. Now, what's the outlook? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if Enrollment eventually tops 22 million this year, largely because the Medicaid renewal process will continue through the first half of this year. And as more enrollees lose coverage, the ACA could be a coverage option. Uh, number two, the growth trajectory helps cement uh, the ACA into the healthcare fabric, making it more and more difficult to repeal, which presidential candidate Trump has promised to do if elected. Uh, and then for United Health and Centene, they're probably the biggest winners because they have the largest footprint in terms of the number of states they're in, uh, roughly 28 or 29 states for uh, those companies, uh, followed by Elevance and, and some others. So uh, they're likely to see uh, the, the biggest gains from this and will continue to see the biggest gains as the Medicaid process unfolds through this year. Now on the other topic, the hospital at home trend, it's uh, something to keep an eye on. Uh, it, it's starting out very small, but this could uh, grow over time. And so what am I talking about with hospital at home? It's a pandemic era waiver that allows hospitals to provide inpatient hospital care for patients in Medicare's fee-for-service program. 
these hospitals get the same inpatient payment amount they would have received if uh, they had received care, provided care in a brick and mortar setting, but the waiver allows them to get the payment when the care is provided at home. Uh, the waiver is expire, expires at the end of the year. We think it'll get extended. Uh, the key here is how healthcare players and some non-healthcare players are using this as an opportunity to expand their uh, growth opportunities to capture some of those healthcare dollars. So when you think about a company like Best Buy, you wouldn't think healthcare, but they've expanded their remote monitoring and telehealth capabilities through acquisition and are partnering with hospital systems to provide the IT infrastructure to safely uh, do these hospital at home programs. Uh, Companies like Emeticis have expanded their home health capabilities through acquisition, but they too are being in the process of uh, being acquired by United Health, seemingly as a way for the company to improve margins on their Medicare population by creating a pathway for treatment in a cheaper setting without lowering quality. So is this a big revenue driver for companies now? No. Uh, but with increasing pressure on health plans through lower payment rates, a shift to value-based healthcare, a growing Medicare population, the hospital home trend is something that uh, we're keeping an eye on and, and to see how it evolves over the coming years. Uh, so with that, I'll turn it back to Elliot. Great. Thanks a lot, Dwayne. Really interesting stuff. Um, all right, we're going to stick with healthcare and bring in Tish Walker. Uh, Tish, you've been following the Arbutus versus Moderna patent litigation over Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine, and it sounds like there's a key hearing coming up on February 8th uh, that you're going to be watching. Can you tell us more about that hearing and why it's so important? Hi, Elliot. Uh, sure. So yeah, I've been following this case, um, gosh, since 2022. This was actually the first case that was filed on the COVID vaccines litigations where Arbutus sued Moderna, alleging that Moderna's spike vax infringes several of their patents that cover lipid nanoparticle technology. Um, the patents that they asserted expire, uh, one expired last year in July of 2023, and the others expire in 2029. Um, so the, the uh, hearing that's coming up is a claim construction hearing. It's going to provide the court an opportunity to construe the claims. And we think this key is really going to be, this hearing is going to be key to Moderna because you know, based on the filings, Moderna looks like they are setting up to argue that their COVID vaccine doesn't infringe these patents. And I think the key to their argument is likely going to be that their vaccine contains a different amount of lipids than what's actually claimed in Arbutus's claims, particularly in the 2029 patents. So the 2029 patents, most of them claim these lipid nanoparticle formulations that contain a certain amount of lipids. And of interest here is the cationic lipid, which typically their claims say uh, 50 to 65%. Now, looking at some of the filings, it looks like Moderna has some level potentially lower than 50%, though it's not clear, we're not able to deduce from their filings what amount they actually have. So what's going to be key at this hearing is how those claims are construed around 50 to 60 percent and what amount if any below that 50 percent 
is Arbutus's claims going to be set to cover? Um, now, one of those patents in the 2029 patents uh, has been drafted where they don't actually recite a specific amount of cationic lipid, but what Moderna is arguing in the claim construction is, well, during prosecution of all these patents, the key feature that you, Arbutus, relied on for patentability was to say that it was 50 to 65% cationic lipid. So they're looking to have the court read that into the claims the patent that doesn't specify um, the percentage of cationic lipid. That's the 378 patent that expires in 2029. So I think this is going to be sort of the first battle between these two to really get a sense of what Arbutus's patents cover and how successful potentially Moderna's arguments could be for non-infringement. Um, this is a brand-on-brand -brand type of patent litigation, so really what we're looking at is whether Moderna is going to be on the hook for a reasonable royalty. Um, so, you know, we think the risk to Moderna is about 107 to 56 or 568 million um, in total patent royalties through 2029. Um, but again, we think this is really going to be key to whether they can limit or potentially reduce that liability. And with that, I'll turn it back to you, Elliot. Good stuff. Thanks, Tish. Um, all right, let's stick with patents, but uh, move over to the tech sector and bring in Tamlin Basin. Uh, Tamlin, I think when we last had you on here, you were previewing for us the likelihood of an import ban against certain Apple Watches. And I guess now that import ban has taken effect and uh, you've written about what Apple's options are going forward to deal with it. Uh, you want to tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. Hi, Elliot. Um, yeah, so you're right. <clears throat> Apple is no longer selling watches in the U.S. market um, that can measure a user's blood oxygen level. And the reason for that is a long-running intellectual property dispute with medical device maker Massimo. And in particular, it's this import man you mentioned that was issued by the International Trade Commission after finding that Apple's watches infringed two of Massimo's patents. <clears throat> now, um, the last time we talked, that ban had been temporarily paused by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, but the court then said that the ban could go back into effect during the pendency of Apple's appeals, appeal of that underlying decision. Um, so the ban did take hold January 18th. Um, so right now, what we're waiting for is any indication that Apple is willing to finally settle this lawsuit. Now, so far it has refused, and its attempt to design around the infringing patents was successful only because what it essentially did was issue a software update that blocked this feature from working. Um, and, and in fact, because these um, patents protect hardware, um, specifically it sort of protects the, the, the placing of the sensors on the back of the watch to measure these blood oxygen levels. Um, but because of that, we don't think it's likely that Apple is going to be able to come up with any easy way to bring a, a watch to market that includes these features absent a, a broad and significant redesign. Now, the litigation has shifted somewhat the focus of litigation to a case in Del Delaware where Apple is actually the plaintiff and it's trying to stop Massimo from bringing its own watch in the market. Now, in that case, Massimo has challenged Apple's asserted patents at the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, and it has asked the Delaware court to pause that proceeding um, while those challenges play out. Apple, a few weeks ago, opposes that stay um, and, and argues that the district court 
court case is um, Apple's best chance to stop Massimo from really coming in here and, and taking massive scale uh, share in this market for, for smartwatches that monitor um, these uh, functionalities. Now, we think the court will deny Apple's request and <clears throat> that the case will be um, can stayed while, while these challenges play out. But the funnel Fundamental question remains is, is will Apple settle? Now most companies would have done so already rather than letting a highly touted, touted feature be removed from a signature, signature product. Um, Apple's resistance to a deal is likely at least partially driven by a reluctance to set a precedent of paying off patent owners. Now like most large tech companies, Apple does face dozens of patent infringement lawsuits each year. And if it were to settle all of those cases, it really would <clears throat> have a material impact on Apple's margins. However, we're just gonna have to wait and see if it reaches a threshold in this dispute with Massimo where the damages of that sales ban outweigh the potential risks of setting such a precedent. So I will leave it there. Back to you, Elliot. Thanks, Cameron. That's super interesting, multifaceted litigation. Um, all right, uh, let's stick with tech. Uh, we'll move over to the internet side of, this, of the sector, bring in Matt Schettenhelm. Matt, um, it's a pretty, pretty high-profile case you're following in the Supreme Court that's going to be argued later in February over whether states like Florida and Texas can compel companies like Google and Meta to carry content against their will. Um, pretty interesting First Amendment issue, I guess, with big implications for these companies in particular. You want to come in and tell us more about it? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Elliot. Uh, big tech regulation remains a, a hot topic here in Washington, D.C. And just this week, we had, you know, a, a very um, high profile hearing in the Senate about how to regulate these companies um, for harms to that they may be causing for for children. This Supreme Court case really gets to how can can uh, regulators go after these companies and how does the First Amendment limit their ability to regulate. At issue specifically here are two state laws, one from Florida, one from Texas, that were motivated by concerns that the big tech companies were biased against conservatives. But fundamentally, these laws raise a basic question uh, about control um, from the companies. Can regulators force the companies to operate as open platforms for the speech of others? The companies say no. They say they have a First Amendment right to decide what appears on their platforms, what to emphasize on their platforms, just as the New York Times gets to decide what stories to run and which to emphasize or, or prioritize, just as a museum curator gets to decide what to display. The government can't dictate how they make those speech decisions. And so that's that's what's teed up here. In terms of impact, I think there are two important things to watch here. One, if the states win big here and social media companies can't control their platforms, they can be treated as common carriers, it risks denting their digital ad business that brings in billions of dollars a year for, for Alphabet and Meta. Uh, the, the platforms would be at risk of being overwhelmed by content that the companies now look uh, work very hard to remove. Advertisers could look elsewhere, um, and, and, and that could have a dent on the business. If the companies win and the First Amendment shields um, them from this sort of regulation, the question is how big of a victory did they win? How much does the First Amendment shield 
other types of regulation, such as data privacy regulation, such as regulation aimed at protecting kids, there's the potential for a very big win for the companies here as well. So how does it likely play out? It's not a sure thing, and I, I expect the Supreme Court to be divided on this, but I give the companies a 70% chance to win this case. I think Justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas are good bets to rule against the companies and to rule for the states. But in my view, it's difficult to see the states getting two more votes uh, to win this case. Justices Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Roberts will be the most important to watch at the February 26th hearing. Uh, and so keep an eye on them. I expect the court to decide this case in the second quarter, probably in May or June. With that, let me toss it back to you, Elliot. Great. Thanks, Matt. Um, that'll be a really interesting one to watch. I'm sure it'll garner a lot of headlines. <clears throat> um, all right, I'll jump in here to talk about uh, a lawsuit by trade groups on behalf of hedge funds and private equity firms challenging uh, an SEC rule from August that increases uh, regulations for private fund advisors. Uh, specifically, that rule requires private fund advisors to give investors quarterly statements detailing performance, fees, and expenses. Uh, the rules also call for these advisors to obtain annual audits for each private fund. The rules also prohibit providing preferential treatment to investors, and the rules impose restrictions on uh, expenses and fees that are related to government investigations. So all told, these uh, rules are estimated to cost private funds about $5 billion per year to comply with, and uh, they're expected to result in loss of investor capital and higher fees for investors as well. Oral argument is going to be held February 5th uh, before a three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which generally, as I think most people are now aware, has been a very business-friendly court and also a court um, you know, very skeptical of administrative overreach. And that's one of the reasons we think uh, the challengers that are suing here have a 70% chance of striking down the rule, as we think their primary arguments will resonate with these judges on the Fifth Circuit, and then also the Supreme Court if it gets that far. Uh, just to be a little more specific, um, I think the trade groups have a strong argument that the SEC is exceeding its authority uh, because the agency is relying on a general anti-fraud provision of the Investment Advisors Act, as well as a section of Dodd-Frank that doesn't really even mention private funds, but instead is focused on retail investors, which really aren't at issue here. So I think the, the court will find that the rule violates the major questions doctrine because Congress didn't explicitly give the SEC the authority to regulate private funds in this manner. Um, like I said, oral argument on February 5th, uh, and I expect a decision by this three-judge panel by the end of the second quarter. Um, if the SEC loses, as we expect they will, um, the agency can then pursue further review by the full Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court, um, but I don't expect the agency to do any better uh, with those appeals either. So for now, stay tuned for updates following the February 5th hearing. Um, and uh, we will move on to Nathan Dean to talk some financials policy. Um, Nathan, a lot of talk about the Basel III endgame recently and whether it will be finalized this year or not. Um, plus, 
I feel like we've been waiting for the CFPB's final rule on credit card late fees for quite a while now. You want to come in and tell us the latest on both of those issues? Yeah. So let's start with the Basel three endgame. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people know what this is, but just for those of you who don't know, it is a it's the last remaining piece of the Basel three accords, hence the name endgame. And it's a recalibration of risk weighting of assets, which when taken with all the changes as proposed, you're looking at around a 19% increase in capital requirements for the largest banks. So the JP Morgans, the Bank of Americas. For the regional banks, you're looking around 5 to 6%. Now, this rule is universally hated by the industry. In fact, for those of us in the DC area, we actually had commercials during the Ravens Chiefs game talking about Basel III Endgame. Um, so what the industry is doing is at this moment is they are putting pressure on the Fed the OCC and the FDIC to either scale back drastically their rule or their hope, better hopes is to delay this until after the 2024 election. And then if you get a Republican victor in the White House, then you know this rule could be indefinitely delayed. So what do we think is going to happen? Well, the comment deadline was January 16th, so the Fed and the other regulators are going to go quiet for the next few months. They're going to analyze all the comments. There were lots of them. And then they're going to try and give us signals on what they think will happen. Now, as of right now, we are still saying 60% chance of finalization this year, but I want to throw a huge caveat on this because the Fed is hanging by a thread because the amount of changes that they are going to make, which I think they will make, and we actually saw a note from uh, uh, one of the bank, uh, one of the big banks this week saying that they think there are going to be substantial changes to the Basel III endgame, um, is because if you look at the risk weighting of assets within this rule, specifically geared towards consumer products like mortgages, loans. We've even seen criticism from moderate Democrats over the environmental aspect of this for the risk weighting of uh, climate uh, financial instruments. That's going to change. There are three pillars to this rule. It's operational risk, capital risk, and market risk. And it's the operational risk and the capital risk that I think are going to be dramatically changed. Now, we'll, we don't have a prediction on Will it be a 19% increase in capital? It'll probably be much smaller than that, but that's the thing that we're going with at this moment. But like I said, there is a decent chance that this could also be delayed because there's another, there's a substantial number of changes that they want to make in only so much time. The other thing that they've got, uh, the regulators have going against them is there are is a threat of lawsuit. And there is, it's very feasible that if uh, they do finalize this rule that on next year edition, our next year uh, uh, January edition of this podcast, Elliot will be talking about the lawsuit that has been made against the Basel III endgame. So just keep that in mind. The industry is prepped for a lawsuit. Uh, we're not making a determination on that yet, but just that's one way that the banks have said, you better make sure you get this right, because if you don't, we're going to sue you. Now, moving on to the credit card late fee, the reason why we're telling this about this now is that I suspect the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is going to release their pr proposal on credit card late fees before the March 7th State of the Union. Now, this was supposed to come out at the tail end of 2023. It didn't. I suspect that it was delayed because of political decisions. Uh, this rule goes into President Biden's agenda on his war on, quote unquote, junk fees. This is primarily over the CFPB and the FTC, but for the CFPB, this is one of the key rulemakings. Now, what does this do? Well, there's about $12 billion in late fees out there right now uh, per, uh, per year uh, because late fees are capped at $30. 
This will take the $30 fee and drop it down to $8. And as a result, up to $9 billion, once you add all the other technicalities around it, nine out of the $12 billion in late fees could be at risk. Now, who does this impact? Well, it's the private card, private label cards like Synchrony and Bread Financial that are the ones that are most at risk. So if you, for example, if you have a Nordstrom card or a Sears card, and I just realized I dated myself because I'm not sure if a Sears card actually exists anymore. But if you have one of those private label cards, it's the company behind it that usually gets more of these late fees. And in fact, we just recently saw Bread Financial say in their fourth quarter earnings that if this rule is in place or had this rule been in place at the tail end of 2023, their revenue year over year would be 25% lower than what it is right now. So this is a real risk to Bread and Synchrony. Both companies have said that they're taking steps to deal with this, but I do highly anticipate that the CFPB is going to finalize this in the next few weeks and that President Biden is going to mention it in the State of the Union address. Thank you, Elliot. Yeah, you bet, Nathan. And I think early on you said that it was a proposal coming up, but then, as you said at the end, it's uh, the rule finalization that, that you're expecting in the coming weeks. That's correct, yeah. Yep. Uh, all right, let's uh, shift gears to mass torts and bring in Justin Teresi, who covers consumer and industrial litigation and policy for us. Justin, buyer uh, hit with a $2.25 billion jury verdict just uh, recently. Um in litigation over whether the weed killer Roundup causes cancer. And you've written that Bayer will face additional trials in state courts throughout the U.S. Uh, can you come in and tell us a little bit more about this litigation? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks, Elliot. Uh, so, you know, after a bit of a lull in the new year here, all eyes are back on Bayer and the company's weed killer litigation after the verdict you just mentioned in Philadelphia last week for $2.25 billion awarded to a single plaintiff. And this brings buyers total liability for jury verdicts since the start of 2023 to over $4 billion now. And this is even though the company's won about 10 of the 16 trials it's faced in the last year. So buyers saying that, you know, they will be appealing this verdict and other roundup verdicts. But because of the ratio of this particular verdict's damages, which was $225,000 in compensatory damages to $2. billion in punitives, the award's actually within this constitutional ratio um, where, you know, the, the damages itself aren't, aren't, you know, in a place of unconstitutional numbers. There's a cap of one to nine usually that would trigger an unconstitutional ratio, and that's just not the case here. So while an automatic reduction in the jury verdict isn't necessarily on the table, Bayer is going to attack the compensatory damages themselves as excessive in the coming weeks. And it's going to be a bit of a harder challenge, but we think it's highly likely that this amount will be reduced by some factor. The issue is it just might not be to the degree the company is hoping to reduce it for. Uh, so in these suits, plaintiffs are claiming that Roundup, you know, a product that Bayer inherited from its acquisition of Monsanto back in 2016, has caused their varying cancers. The most notably of those is non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And in 2021, the company took a charge related to this litigation for a total of $16 billion. That same year, buyers settled about 125,000 of those cases for $9.6 billion, but that still leaves a remainder of about $6.4 billion in the company's reserves. So what's changed from 2021 is the company's currently stated litigation strategy of really digging in its heels and fighting the cases through, through trial to a full jury verdict. And the company's reaffirmed this strategy and stance several times, and even in the recent weeks when these verdicts have been coming out. 
The company still strongly denies that glyphosate, the alleged carcinogen in Roundup, actually does cause the cancers at issue. And complicating matters here, the number of remaining Roundup cases, it's about 50,000 cases now nationwide, and it's continuing to grow with no cap really in sight. A lot of these cancers are latent, and you know, folks who might bring a suit might not yet be aware that they're ill or tie their illness purportedly to Roundup. But these cases, the 50,000 of them, most of them are now on file in state courts and scattered throughout the entire country. And complicating things there, we're talking about different statutory and common law rules in each one of these states that's really affecting uh, the outcomes of these cases from place to place. Really wide, different results we're seeing in different jurisdictions. So we're really on watch here for a parade of what we think will be mixed verdicts that, that will continue over February and the coming year. There's at least 10 trials on the calendar right now for 2024, and at least state, uh, four state tr uh, trials that are slated for next month alone in February. And from what we're seeing, they're reportedly taking place in Delaware, Arkansas, California, and another one in Philadelphia. Most of these jurisdictions have been notoriously plaintiff-friendly, not great news for Bayer. So, you know, you might be asking, what, why the continued push here to fight these cases and not just try to settle what's left in the reserves that are remaining? And that brings us to our second catalyst for Bayer that we're, that's moving concurrently with these jury trials. And that is that we're waiting on a ruling from Atlanta's 11th Circuit where a panel of that court is reevaluating whether state law claims on Roundup are preempted by federal law. An en banc decision from that circuit said they could in fact be, be preempted depending on whether an EPA determination about glyphosate carried the force of law. So if the appeals court finds these claims as preempted, and we give Bayer a slight edge here with the odds, we think they will, this creates a circuit split with the Ninth Circuit in California and raises the chances significantly that the Supreme Court will hear the preemption question. Bayer has stated publicly many times and even now on its website that it hopes for a Supreme Court resolution of these cases in, in their favor. A favorable ruling from the Supreme Court here could effectively end state cases related to Roundup nationwide. So we believe this ruling from the 11th Circuit is imminent, could come any time, but the court has been a bit slow, so we think you know, it could take through the first half of this year before we see something there. And uh, that's, buyer in a round, uh, that's buyer litigation in a nutshell. Thanks, Elliot. That's your roundup of roundup litigation. Um, yeah, I mean, that's super interesting because of the multi again multifaceted litigation moving on you know, several tracks that impact each other. Um, all right, last but not least, let's bring in um, our antitrust guru, Jen Ree. Uh, Jen, you're expecting uh, the FTC, which has been pretty active in the antitrust space, to file a lawsuit challenging the Kroger-Albertsons deal. Um, why don't you come in, tell us why you think that and what investors should be looking out for. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Elliot. Um, so this deal's been pending since October of 2022. So why is it coming back now? And I think it's likely the FTC sues the companies this month to try to stop them from closing the deal. And it's because the companies have a timing agreement with the FTC that ends in mid-February. Now, that could get extended, which would then push back the start of a lawsuit, but I sort of doubt it. Um, and if the FTC wants to try to stop them from closing, they have to bring a suit before the end of that timing agreement, because after that, they don't have a legal ability uh, to stop them from closing. So these companies are two grocery store chains, as I think everyone knows, and they each own numerous brands, a, a, quite a few that I didn't even realize they owned until I started looking at this, like Albertsons owning Balducci's, which came as a surprise to me. Um, so they're bigger nationally than you might think at first, first glance, and this came from years of consolidation in the grocery sector, which kind of poses a problem for getting this deal cleared. 
So for months now, the companies have been trying to convince the FTC to allow them to close the deal with a settlement. And the settlement would involve the divestiture of up to about 650 Kroger and Albertsons grocery stores. Now, the way this works, broadly speaking, is that the FTC would assess this deal by looking at hundreds of separate little deals, little geographic markets where both companies have stores. So I call it a map deal because they go on a map and they draw circles around the stores on a map that range from one mile in radius to about 10 miles, depending on the region. And then they ask what the competitive dynamic is within each of those circles and whether or not, by virtue of the consolidation, will buyers of groceries or employees of those grocery stores have fewer options such that they may face higher prices, a lack of innovation and choice, lower wages or lack of employment. So Kroger is basically offering to resolve concerns in about 650 of those circles, more or less. Sometimes in one circle, you have to sell two stores. So if they sold to an independent grocer, then competition would be preserved, right? Because you'd have a new party in there. Now, five or six years ago, this would have been kind of a no-brainer to win clearance from the FTC. But this FTC is far more aggressive than previous agencies with respect to trying to prevent consolidation. And they're far less willing to accept this kind of settlement offer. Um, and they're generally unhappy right now with the level of concentration in groceries and skeptical of these divestitures being successful. So that's why I think they're going to sue instead of accepting the settlement. So that means it's up to a judge to decide whether the settlement is offered offer is good enough because I really think that's where it's going to come down to in court. And I think it's really close. And the reason I think it's close is because while 650 stores, I believe, is enough, the buyer Kroger chose is kind of has some issues. It's kind of borderline. It's a company called CNS, which is mostly a wholesaler and not a retailer. It does own the store brand Piggly Wiggly, some people might have heard of, um, and it's been said that they have 160 stores, but I believe they actually franchise quite a few of those stores, so they're not actually operating them. So adding 650 is a huge increase, and they'd also be buying stores in states where they don't currently have distribution and haven't operated in the past. Now, under the guidelines for horizontal mergers, settlement offers have to do two things. They have to put together a critical mass of assets that'll permit the purchaser to compete effectively in the markets identified as problematic. They've probably done that. But the second thing is they have to have a buyer that will genuinely recreate the competitive force lost as a result of the merger. They have to be committed, dedicated, and experienced to be effective. That's how the agency will look at it, and that's what they'll have to prove to a judge. So I think this is going to come down to whether CNS in court can prove to the judge that they are that buyer, that they can take these stores, they have the resources, they have the plan, and compete as effectively as Kroger or Albertsons are competing today. Now, I kind of, at least very superficially, without having the evidence I need, lean toward them being able to pull it off, mostly because I think these companies are pretty sophisticated from an antitrust perspective and probably did their due diligence. But after trial, I might have a different view once I've had access to the evidence as to CNS's suitability. Um, I will attend the trial and keep updating my materials on the deal as things develop. So for anyone specifically interested in this deal, please keep watching for my updates. Back to you, Elliot. Great stuff as always, Jen, and congratulations on um, being the first person to, to mention Piggly Wiggly on a Votes and Birds episode. <laughs> I had to get that in there. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't blame you. All right. Okay. So um, I think with that, we will wrap up this episode of Votes and Verdicts. A lot of interesting things to watch in February. As always, thank you for listening. And as a reminder, you can find all of our research on the Bloomberg Terminal at BIGO. 
and we encourage you to reach out to us with any questions that you may have. We also encourage you to listen to other episodes of Votes and Verdicts on whatever podcast platform you like to get your favorite podcasts on. So with that, thank you for listening and have a great day. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.